0: Ye-hoo, woo-hoo, yee-haw. You may have used one or more of those in a text thread recently. I don't know. It might surprise you to learn that they are descriptions of the once-famous rebel yell that Confederate soldiers would shriek out as they rode into battle. In a 1905 edition of Confederate Veteran Magazine, whoa, the things you learn. <laughs> Apparently... I- I couldn't bring myself to research more about Confederate Veteran Magazine, but apparently it existed for a while. Anyway, in a 1905 edition of Confederate Veteran Magazine, Confederate Colonel Keller Anderson described the rebel yell this way. The yell was a do-or-die expression, a maniacal maelstrom of sound, a penetrating, rasping, shrieking, blood-curdling noise whose volume reached the heavens. Uh, The rebel yell wasn't unique to the southern states or her soldiers. It had similar counterparts in Native American war calls of the time and the screams of the Scottish Highlanders. But more than that, God tells us that it is the natural expression of every human heart and every human society. A rebel yell, a blasphemous howl, angry and violent, the noise mankind makes, not in anger against one another as much as rebellion against our creator God, God who rules heaven and earth. When you go back to the book of Psalms, you discover that there are many types of songs, and over the year that we've been here in the book, we've been talking about some of them. There are songs for pilgrims and songs for kings, songs for the temple, songs for the wilderness, songs for victors, songs for the oppressed. At the very entrance of this wonderful book, After being told in Psalm 1, the key to living a happy life, full of purpose, full of growth, the way that God wants us to go, we're then given something remarkable. Not a song for servants, not a song for the faithful, but a song for rebels. The the people of God aren't addressed really directly at all in this song. Instead, here in chapter 2, heaven sings a melody of invitation to the treasonous enemies of God, hoping that they will lay down their arms in surrender and be saved from certain defeat. Along the way in this song, we are introduced to the most important character of all human history, Christ the Messiah, the King, whose rule is sure, whose coming is unstoppable, and who will destroy all who stand against Him. But then we also see that this King of fierce wrath is also a King of matchless love. He's a King who can be approached even by traitors, and receive his forgiveness. There's a lot of talk these days about being on the right side of history. Psalm 2, the song for rebels, confronts you and I and everyone in the world with the question of whether you are on the right side of eternal history. The king is real, and the king is coming. And so have you attached yourself to him? The song has no introduction, but we're told in the book of Acts that it was written by David. Though it may have been used in coronation ceremonies, it's clear that this psalm looks far beyond any mortal monarch to the king of all kings, the only begotten son of God. It's quoted at least seven times in the New Testament, three of those being in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as the song opens, we're not shown the king on his throne, but an angry mob coming together, hoping to throw him down from his throne. Verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers conspire together against the Lord and his anointed one. Having seen the goodness of God and his rich promises in Psalm 1, having seen how kind God is to individuals and nations who will repent from sin and give themselves to him, whether it's men like Abraham or city like Nineveh, uh, outsiders like Rahab, or so many other examples, Having seen what God is willing to do on behalf of those he loves, it is bewildering to see this reaction of the human heart to the Lord. David was bewildered. Why? What's going on, he said? That's a question that keeps ringing like a bell in our hearts as we look at the world around us, isn't it? Why is there so much unrest and violence and destruction and unreasonableness laying waste to our cities and to our relationships and to our institutions? Why is there so much anger? Why is there such a refusal to turn from evil and embrace good? Well, the rage that we see spilling out around us is nothing new. In fact, the Bible says it's normal. That's the natural state of man, the regular operation of the human heart in its unredeemed state. That's why God said, I've got to do something about this. Way back in the Garden of Eden, he said, you know, to Adam and Eve, they weren't doing anything remarkably violent or angry or bad. In fact, they were probably the two most moral sinners of all time. Uh, But God said immediately in their sinful state, well, we have got to do something about this. And he put his plan in motion. Isaiah 57 describes the human heart this way. It says, those who still reject God are like the restless sea, which is never still but continually churns up mud and dirt. That's the human heart. Like the ocean lapping its waves upon the sand over and over and over, always churning, always stirring, always angry. The human heart cannot stay passive when it comes to God. There are many who say they are agnostic, right? Especially in today's day and age. They don't know if God exists or doesn't, but it doesn't matter to them, they say. But you know, that's not good enough for sin. Sin must rebel, it must destroy, it must tear down, it must drive a person farther from God and to his, and from his gentle call to reconcile. God's desire is to heal and to comfort those, those who do not deserve it, and yet so many refuse him and therefore find no peace in their hearts or in their lives. And this is not just an individual's problem because it is compounded When fallen human beings group up together in societies and into nations. Of course, we know that at Jesus' second coming, all the nations of the world will literally take a stand against the Lord. They come to fight together. The Lord breaks through the clouds. And so they say, well, why don't we attack this guy? Looking there upon Christ himself, they will turn against him and take a stand. But it's not just the end of human history where that's going to happen. All of human history has shown this type of rebellious behavior. Whether it's like the people there at the Tower of Babel who said, let's make for ourselves a great tower so that we can show how we have no need of God, how we reach to the heavens ourselves and we can silence his influence in our lives. Or whether it's a more modern example like the Soviet Union, let's kill God out of our society and then we'll also happen to kill tens of millions of people along with him. But you know, human rebellion churns and transforms into a purpose to fight against God. What these kings and rulers don't realize in verses 1 and 2 is that all their resistance is futile. They are determined, however, and here's their mission statement. Verse 3, let's tear off their chains and throw their ropes off of us. You know, the human heart is convinced that God's desire is to enslave us and beat us down. And uh, in in a less rebellious way, this is an idea that gets planted onto Christianity. Oh, well, Christianity is just about following a bunch of rules. You want to take things away from me and, you know, trap me into this system. And it's the same idea. God wants to enslave us. God wants to capture us, hold us down under his thumb. It's really the very first lie humans fell for back in the Garden of Eden. As God really said... Oh, he only said that so that you won't become like him. He wants to hold you back. He wants to hold you down. And here we see these rebels yelling about how God is trying to tie us up and put us in chains. Like most of Satan's lies, there's a kernel of truth. God does want to tie us. The Bible says so. But to what and with what? Well, the Lord says in Hosea that he led his people with ropes of kindness and bonds of love. His desire is not to tie us down, but to attach us to himself so that he might bear our burdens and transform our lives and keep us from spiritual shipwreck to save individuals and families and even nations by his grace. Sometimes it's pictured as an anchor in the storm uh, so that we might not be destroyed by the things that are going on in the world around us. It's true that God's kind bonds of love do include limits and boundaries, of course. What we find in Scripture is that these do not confine us in some sort of prison. They actually protect us. They are good. They are beneficial. They show the way uh, of life and the way to life more abundantly. They're described in Psalm 1. These boundaries and these limits that God places, He says these are the pathway to delight, fulfillment, and purpose. These guidelines are given to us for our personal life, our family lives, our life in work, and society, in the wider world. And you know, they're not simply suggestions or one potential way of getting where you want to go. They are commands from the king. A good and gracious king, but the king nonetheless. Recently we've seen a dramatic and tragic real world example of the rebel heart of man seeking to throw off all authority. It was called CHAZ, the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, or they changed it after a while to the Capitol Hill Organized Protest. What was that? It was a group of rebels raging in the streets, three weeks, four shootings, two dead, untold property damage, ruined lives, the outworking of rebellion living in the heart of unredeemed man. Uh, This is what the human heart does, this is what sin does. It destroys, it promises freedom, it promises license, it promises, you know, pleasure and all of these different things, but it only brings destruction. In the 1960s, many young people in the counterculture hippie movement embraced what they called free love. It was a throwing off of God's boundaries and guidelines, and it's one that still reverberates today. Back in 2007, NBC News reported on the long-term fallout of this choice to tear off the chains of chastity and embrace the destructive license of sexual sin. The article writes this, From idealism to despair, there was a price to pay for all that free love. From 1964 through 1968, the rates of syphilis and gonorrhea in California rose 165%. Dr. David Smith, who founded the Haight-Ashbury Free Clinic, said, It would be an understatement to say there was a spike in STDs. That's like saying a hurricane is a strong wind. The article goes on, Abortion was another issue that erupted during the summer of love. By the end of the summer, many women, some of them young teenagers, needed treatment for botched abortions. Enthusiasts of the 1960s discovered that the free love train was not going to be a smooth ride. In the human heart, since the fall in the Garden of Eden, Sadly, is ready to choose death rather than life. Uh, that's the deal. And That's why Jesus Christ had to come so that we might have life and have it more abundantly. This is why we also need to ha- take a careful look at who rules on the throne of our hearts. Is it King Jesus or is it some other? You know, the New Testament calls on us to crucify that other king and instead bow our knees to Jesus Christ, the Anointed One, and welcome Him to lead us in His bonds of love, tethered to Him under His easy yoke. And so even though most of us here today are Christians, are believers, we are citizens of heaven and have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, even still we want to make sure that we've not let some pretender onto the throne of our hearts to start trying to call the shots. It's interesting scenes in the... uh, history of the kings of Israel be time or two where there would be a a point of transition or a a point of difficulty where the true king of Israel would be out of state or on the run and some pretender would come and say I'm the king now whether it was Absalom trying to take over the throne from his father David uh, or whether it was Adonijah trying to take the throne from his brother Solomon there are these times where Uh, The throne was sort of left open in a sense, even though there was a true king. And it created a real problem for the nation and, and for the city of Jerusalem. And so applying that devotionally to our heart, even as people who are owned by Jesus Christ and we own him as king, we want to make sure that the throne of our hearts is occupied only by the Lord and by his sure rule in us. Now, this psalm also brings out the reality that personal wickedness leads to national wickedness. See, Psalm 1 is all about the personal. It's kind of speaking to the individual. You as an individual walker, right? What are you going to do? Are you going to go the way of the righteous or the way of the wicked? And now Psalm 2 continues this idea but talks about the way of nations, the way of kings and leaders with groups of people. Uh, Personal wickedness leads to national wickedness. And today we can see that so many leaders of so many nations have taken up the cause of rebellion against God and His ways. And that's not just in some far-off land somewhere where they follow some other god. No, we can look at our own nation. Look at the idols we worship. Uh, Look at the values we promote day in and day out. Look at the the behaviors we are protecting at the national and state and local levels. As Christ-loving Christians... We find ourselves not in David's Jerusalem, but in Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. That doesn't mean we're without hope, but we need to have a proper perspective. Uh, We do not live in faithful Jerusalem. We live in Babylon, a realm of hatred and violence and anger and sacrilege. We can see it all around us, and God sees it too. And he has provided enough power and enough strength so that you and I can live like a Daniel or a Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego in the midst of this uh, fallen world. But taking a look at this world, here's God's response in verse 4. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord ridicules them. God has a sense of humor. He created humor, of course, but it's sometimes good to remind ourselves that God does express emotion. He's a person. He does so perfectly and in line with his unchanging character, but our God feels. Here he is poetically described as laughing at these conspiring kings who are in such an uproar against him. If that seems like an undignified or distasteful image to you, remember this. This is the God who one commentator points out could, quote, with one word or look, destroy all his enemies. He could do that. Uh, With the glimmer of a thought, God could end all of his enemies immediately. And yet he doesn't. Because despite their wickedness and their rage and their traitorous rebellion and their refusal to honor the true king of heaven and earth, God loves these people. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. At the same time, the Bible's clear that God truly does hate our sin. He hates sin. But from heaven's perspective, you can't help but laugh. When you look down on the world and all of these nations raging, Heaven can't help but laugh. Uh, It's hard to correlate an analogy, but imagine for a moment that you're uh, sweeping up the house and the dust bunnies you were sweeping up from your floor somehow communicated to you they were going to mount an offensive against you and become the rulers of their domain. That'd be funny. Uh, It'd be, be downright silly. Or in a more real world example, sometimes we've, Heard some of the proclamations or the uh, saber-rattling of the regime in North Korea, right, over the many years. And a lot of times we can't help but laugh for a lot of reasons. They don't think it's funny. He's very serious. Uh, but imagine heaven, God, out of reach of anything mankind could ever do. And they say, oh, we're coming for you. We're going we're gonna to cast off the Lord and his anointed." As the nations rage, we see God sitting. He doesn't pace the halls. He's not wringing his hands. Isaiah 18 says this, I will watch quietly from my dwelling place, as quietly as the heat rises on a summer day. God is attentive and patient and full of mercy, but one day the offers he has made to mankind will expire. His long suffering will come to an end. Verse 5, then he speaks to them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath. You know, even this is grace. Again and again, God reaches out to this world, to nations, to individuals, trying to save them from themselves. In the path of destruction, they are rushing down. If they will not respond to his creation, or his compassion, or his communications, then finally, they will be consumed by his wrath. It is, of course, a just wrath against the foul obscenity of man's sin, God cannot overlook sin. To do so would be an unforgivably immoral act. We are disgusted and offended when we see a judge ruling uh, in favor of someone who clearly was guilty of a crime. Now compound that by an infinite level. If God were to overlook sin, of course he cannot do that. He must judge it. He must pour out his wrath on sin. Verse 6 says, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain." God is not simply reacting to things happening on the earth. He is working out an eternal plan. Here he makes it known to these rebels that he already has a king in place. They may wear crowns, they may hold court, but they are not in charge. There is one true king, Jesus Christ. The term God uses here in this verse for installed is one that means poured out. It's an interesting image. This eternal holy plan is the pouring out of, of the Messiah, included the pouring out of Jesus' life on the cross so that he might deal with sin once and for all. This work included uh, and continued as God poured out the Holy Spirit on his people in the church age. And now, day after day, the king's work continues as he pours out his grace along with faith and love in us and through us. At the end of human history, the Lord will pour out his terrible fury on those who will not surrender and repent of their sin. The king has been poured out. He has been installed. But this king is not aloof or withdrawn. He's accessible to anyone. You are welcome at any moment to come and bow before him in worship and service. That's not just for you and me, but that's even for the great leaders of the world. All people, uh, whether they are in some high position or some lowly state, all of us can come before the king. And invite him to have his place in our lives. And in that way, we can all be like Prince Jonathan, the son of Saul. What a great man he was. He was happy to acknowledge that the throne that had been promised to him at one point, or rather the throne that he could have tried to lay claim to, he recognized that that throne belonged to David. It was going to be his, in some sense. And God said, no, it's my way. I want my way choice to be in charge, to be on the throne. And what did Jonathan do? No protest, no anger, no rebellion. Instead, he accepted it. He pledged his love to God's anointed and said, I will be there right beside you to lift high your kingdom. What an amazing thing. And what a wonderful encouragement of the kind of attitude we should have in our hearts. You and I may not be kings of any society or kings of any kingdom, but uh, we're able to try to claim uh, the throne of our own lives and our own hearts, right? No, no, God, I'm in charge. I'm the one who decides this is what I want, and I want to have my way. We want to be like Jonathan, who says, take it. Take it. I, I may have some human claim to this, but it's all yours, and I'm here to serve you and magnify God's choice. Verse 7 says, I will declare the Lord's decree. He said to me, you are my son. Today, I've become your father. Christ himself joins the song here and speaks until the end of verse 9. When it says that God and the Messiah have become Father and Son, perhaps your version says, today I've begotten you, that doesn't mean that Jesus was created or had a temporal beginning. No, it means that in the plan of God, the Son was set in place and position. The idea is used in a similar way in Revelation chapter 1. There, Jesus is identified as the firstborn from the dead. It's a position. It's a title. Here in verse 7, Jesus takes up the duty of declaring the Father's decrees. Of course, as Christ's body here on the earth, we Christians are now commissioned to go and do the same. There is a message to be proclaimed. There is a plan to be explained. A God of mercy to be revealed to the rebels of the earth so that they might understand and have a chance to be saved from their sin. Verse 8, Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. All of heaven and earth belongs to the Lord, not just the land and the air and the water, but your life, your very breath, your future, your soul. It belongs to him. It's his. It's his property. And he has asked for you to become his. What a beautiful thing to learn. In John 17, we see our Lord in love asking for us that we might be made one in him and given access to the glories of his inheritance. We see in this verse that despite all the plotting and the rage in verses 1 and 2, the Lord will be the winner. No one can take what is rightfully His. And there's nothing too broken for Him to restore. As far as fixer-uppers go, the earth is a pretty bad one. Uh, it's got plenty of rust and rot. You might want, if, if you were talking to a realtor, you'd probably want to pass and say, can we, can we take a look at mercury or something like that? But... Jesus alone is worthy to take the scroll and he is able to make right what we and the nations of the world have made wrong for these thousands of years of human history. But the earth from one end to the other will be redeemed, filled with his glory and made new. And so seeing the wide lens of God's plan, we must accept the truth that only Christ can solve the problems of our nation. Uh, That is a fundamental reality that we as Christians need to accept. Jesus Christ can solve the problems of our nation. There are perhaps band-aids and patches that politicians or policymakers can suggest that might in some way help in some small area. But if we're talking about fixing what's wrong on a fundamental level, not just treating some symptom for a short amount of time or in some small segment of society, if we're talking about fixing what's wrong, only Christ can do that. Donald Trump can't do that for us. Black Lives Matter can't do that for us. Whatever side or whatever, you know, know, part of the spectrum you're on, Christ alone is able to save. And and it's salvation that we need. That's salvation that individuals need and that communities need and nations need. Verse 9 says, you will break them with an iron scepter. You will shatter them like pottery. One day the waiting will end and final judgment will arrive, whether that's For an individual unbeliever at their death or a nation at its fall in the midst of history or the whole world at the second coming of Christ, judgment will ultimately arrive and there will be no escape for those who will not own Jesus Christ as king. You can bow before the cross or you will be crushed at the great white throne judgment. Those are the two choices. It's a binary choice. As the Seattle PD swept through Chaz, they made about 30 arrests last week. There were undoubtedly some people who had committed crimes of one sort or another who dispersed and went back home and honestly will not be held accountable in the court of Washington law, right? But there is no flying under the radar of God's judgment. Derek Kidner writes, There is no refuge from Jesus, only in Jesus. But if a person will turn to Christ and surrender, if they will by faith repent and believe, then the Messiah will take their heart, stained and ruined with sin, full of rage and all of these different things that are described here. And when he takes that heart and he washes it with his own blood, making it white as snow. When a person believes on Jesus for salvation, their guilt is removed. It's dealt with at the cross. They are born again, not only into a new life, but into a new kingdom. They become citizens under his throne and then ambassadors for their king with all the privileges and protections safe from the wrath to come. Are you safe? Are you a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Now knowing what God has explained about the world and about his plan, what can a person or a nation do to be made right with God? Well, then the psalm continues in verse 10. So now kings, be wise, receive instruction, you judges of the earth. After seeing all that these ragers have done, all their hate and all their treason and all their rebellion, what does God do? He comes to them with a free offer of peace. This is a magnificent thing. He says, here's what you've done and therefore deserve. Here's what's coming, but here's hope. I bring hope with me before destruction. Here's how to avoid what you so rightly deserve and have earned for yourselves. And what a comfort it is to know that no one is too far gone to be saved by the power of the gospel. No prodigal, no politician, no criminal, no cynic is outside his loving reach if they will but lay down their weapons and receive what is being offered by him. An amazing moment of irony, we remember that these Kings who were so full of rage and demanded to be enthroned instead of the rightful king, Jesus Christ, these individuals are offered the chance to rule and reign along with Jesus in his future kingdom. That's grace. That's grace. That he would take these, these very leaders who have made it the point of their lives to come against the rightful king of heaven. Say, we want you gone. We want to stand against you. We want to throw you off. We refuse, we're going to shriek into the heavens in rebellion against you. And here we get to verse 10, and God says, I have a plan. I can save you from your own sin if you are willing to surrender. And as we track through the rest of the teaching of Scripture into the church age, God says, and if you will surrender, I'll let you rule and reign with me. I'll adopt you as sons and daughters. I'll set you up in in a position to to do my work and to receive the inheritance that belongs to my son, Jesus Christ. That's an amazing God of grace. Verse 11 continues with the hope and the instruction and in how you, these folks can be saved. Serve the Lord with reverential awe and rejoice with trembling. The Lord isn't just looking for a ceasefire. He doesn't just want these people to submit politically, but personally. What God desires is a true love relationship with human beings. One in which we worship Him and serve Him, not begrudgingly, but in celebration. A true living faith which which recognizes uh, that God is who He says He is, and all that He is, and uh, all that He has commanded. Verse 12, pay homage to the Son, or He will be angry, and you will perish in your rebellion. For His anger may ignite at any moment, all who take refuge in Him are happy. We're invited to pay homage to this king with a kiss. It's an intimate, personal act of embrace. That's the closeness he wants with each of his people. Though this verse speaks of God's anger against sin and the required penalty for it, the Bible makes it clear that God does not want anyone to perish but for all to come to repentance, that all would be made his by grace through faith. Your sin, my sin, the sin of the nations of the world, that sin deserves death, but the price has already been paid. And if you're an unbeliever here today, we would just implore you, don't pay the price a second time. If you've ever been to the store and they rang you up twice for the same item, and you look at what, what happened, and you realize, oh, they charged me twice for the milk. It feels weird because you think, I didn't need to pay that. <laughs> and now we think about that on the cosmic level. The price for your sin has been paid for. Jesus Christ paid it. By the shedding of his own blood. Don't pay it again. And don't live a life enslaved to sin. A slave to the rage and the destruction it brings you and your community. Instead, choose to bow your heart to the King of Kings, Jesus the Messiah. The truth is, none of us know when our final day is. Rebellion may cost a person everything at any moment. Instead, we must take refuge in Christ, trust in him, believe him, tie ourselves to him in love and obedience, taking the way of the righteous and the happy man in Psalm 1. We are told that all who take refuge in him are happy. A life dedicated to Christ, attached to Jesus, doesn't only work for a few people. It's not like these medications that are advertised on the television, and you know, if you look at the fine print, you know, this is how many people it was affected for, and the placebo is just as effective for some people. And it's true, lots of medications, they work for some people, they don't work for other people. That's not how it is with Jesus Christ. All who take refuge in him are happy, are blessed, are given life everlasting. During the Civil War, the rebel yell was a source of pride and identity for many Confederate soldiers, In some cases, it was intimidating to the opponents on the battlefield, but, of course, it could do little to change the course of history. One article says it was simply, quote, noise used in a doomed attempt to overcome the Union's overwhelming advantages in men and resources. And, uh, someone shrieking, yay, is (laughs) is... Doesn't make a big difference when the cannons start firing, right? And, uh... Sadly, that didn't stop some Confederates from holding out even after all had been decided. The sailors on the CSS Shenandoah sailed the Atlantic for six months after the war ended, refusing to come home. Many of their fellow fighters, of course, had laid down their weapons and had been once again, what, folded into the United States. Every Confederate soldier wasn't immediately shot or hanged. Uh, You know, I mean... the, 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 the nation was once again put into one, in a sense. But not on the Shenandoah. The captain and her crew thought they wouldn't receive amnesty or mercy for the war that they had waged against the North, though there's reason to believe they would have. Some other examples, like the CSS Alabama. Instead, with the Union ships in hot pursuit, they ran. Six months. The Shenandoah fled 9,000 nautical miles from home, ultimately having to surrender in Liverpool. Psalm 2, it's a song for rebels. It's one that shows us what the condition of our unregenerated hearts is, but also it shows us God's profound mercy. This is the God who wants to take enemy conspirators, save them from themselves, make something beautiful with their lives, use them to benefit the world around them, and then bring them into his own forever kingdom and allow them to rule and reign there. When we talk about the power of Jesus, when we talk about the goodness of God, that's what we're talking about. You're talking about the power that can take the one man who hated Christ more than anyone in the entire planet, who went around killing Christians and savaging the church, and the power of God, in one, after one encounter with Saul of Tarsus, he became Paul. And he became the apostle. He became the model for Christianity. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about the power of God that can take a man like Nebuchadnezzar, who made sport of burning people alive and all sorts of horrifying things, and through the impact of godly people around him, finally came to the conclusion that, oh, your God is God. Uh, We're talking about the kind of God who's able to do much more than we ask or imagine. He can save nations. He can bring down nations in a day, but he can save whole nations. He can... Uh, do whatever he desires according to his plan and his will, and he invites us to be a part of that work. And so, you know, when we say things like Jesus is the answer, that's not trite. It's not an easy answer. We're talking about this kind of power, this kind of goodness, the kind of grace and ability and kindness demonstrated in Psalm 2, that level of transformation. We need God to have his way and his rule in our hearts in our homes and in the halls of our government why because of the following two statements psalm 144:15 happy are the people whose god is the lord psalm 33:12 happy is the nation whose god is the lord let's pray